many times have you seen something lovely, shiny and new on a website and you've taken it all the way through to checkout just because you liked the look of it? Yeah, I do it all the time too. So today in this episode, we're making conversations about visual branding count. What's new, Wendy Wu? The Making Conversations Count website has now got in the resources a take the test attached to my episode about cold calling. It's just a little tool that you can use that'll take you literally a minute or two at most, just to give you some tips on how you're being effective and influencing people by using the phone. We hope that you'll stop by and give it a try. I've also met a lady who booked the power-up offer all the way from Barcelona and is already having amazing results. I can't wait to follow up with her. Over on LinkedIn, I did a post over the bank holiday. There was a poll about when was a good time for you to start any noisy work. Well, this is where even I don't understand LinkedIn sometimes. There was over 62,000 views and over 2,500 votes and the consensus was not before nine o'clock. I'm with you guys. Nine o'clock is late enough to get started on a Sunday or bank holiday Monday. But the interesting thing about that was that clearly some of the lovely people at AXA had also joined in on that engagement after hearing the episode that I did a few weeks ago. If you've not heard it, go back and have a listen after you've finished this one. It's episode 26. I've also been a guest on another podcast show called My Worst Investment Ever. It'll be going live in a couple of weeks time and I'm sure I will share it with you when you can go and grab a listen. So don't forget, folks, it's really important to share the show. You'll find us on all the platforms now. We've got our own Twitter account. We've got a Facebook page. We've got our own website, makingconversationscount.com. So there's no excuse. Get involved. Send me a message and I'll give you a shout out because it's really lovely to hear reviews like this one. Wendy, I just found your show with Henny Maltby and a lot of what she said struck a chord with me. As a business owner of just a few months, I've been really struggling to get my business going, but I'm enjoying the journey and listening to you both discussing it really helped me put things in perspective. Thanks and keep it up. Love from The Cake Lady. Well, The Cake Lady, thank you so much for sending that in. Henny does make a lot of sense and I'm sure we would love to give you a review. Just pop those samples of cake in the post to us. So now it's the time you've been waiting for our guest today. It is Paul Furlong of Opus Media. He has an amazing ability to tell stories through visual mediums. So I'm just going to let him introduce himself and we'll get on with the show. So Opus Media is a uh, media company, as you'd expect. We create video content and photography content for businesses to help them connect people to their brand. And what sort of businesses do you find take that kind of content up most? What we're really good at is taking businesses that are complex, businesses that are really boring, 
and helping them to connect emotionally and simply with their target market. So you make them sexy. Yeah, we make them sexy. So we work with all kinds of sizes of businesses. So, and I'm not saying that any of these businesses are boring, by the way, but uh, businesses from really small to really large. So we've worked with multinationals like Formula One and Subway down to businesses that you've probably only heard of if you're local to them uh, from pre-startups to kind of local businesses. I'm guessing that the use of photography and videography, you have to be really quite keen in how that communication comes across. So the conversations that you have with your clients, I'm guessing, are quite detailed to be sure that you hit the brief that they want as well. They usually start that way. (laughs) And then do you just tell them how it should be? Often ends up with me asking them to stop because I need to be in the position of who's going to be buying what they have to sell. Because at the end of the day, the person who's buying what they have to sell is going to buy from an emotional standpoint. They might rationalize it in their mind, but as we all know, buying is an, uh, is an emotional activity. This is why people who have lots of complexity in what they have to sell are really good for us. They're so excited. They're so invested in everything that they do and everything that their product or service does. They're very close to it. So they love all the intricacies of it. The people buying it aren't necessarily interested in that. So coming in, I don't need to know all of that. So I like to be able to stop them and just ask them, well, so what? Oh, I love that so what kind of conversation that you have. What's the value? Yeah, you can tell me that you're the best ball bearing maker in the universe, but so what? Why do I need a ball bearing? Why do I need the best ball bearing? You can tell me when you click on this screen on your app that it's going to take me to this report. So what? I don't need to know. We've worked with a a software developer recently who's created a a fantastic piece of software and they showed me the whole app and they were absolutely delighted with it as they well should be because it's absolutely sensational piece of software. But the people who are buying it, the procurement managers in in healthcare and and the NHS and, and private healthcare, so they're the people who are not going to be, be using it. They're the people who need to know what the outcomes are going to be. And what we discovered after having spoken to them was the outcomes are going to be that it's going to get people back to living meaningfully in the world after a traumatic injury. That's really emotional. That's really simple. It's going to save the NHS and private healthcare time, and it's going to reduce waiting times, and it's going to save them money. They're the really simple, emotionally engaging things that I needed out of them. I didn't need to know that when you clicked on this screen, it's going to produce all these reports. So I don't need to have those conversations. I just need to know what the outcomes are. The overall solution. Gosh, it sounds like a really interesting role. What's the sexiest project that you've ever had to communicate? From my perspective, the sexiest ad that we've ever done was the subway advert because we had 18 camera operators we had the team from top gear rigging up the taxis we had uh, 25 cast we had daniel storage we had john barnes we had four locations and six hours to shoot in so that was that was pretty fun and actually really delighted with how it came out in the end the ad, the ad was really fun and really cool and we had john barnes doing the anfield rap at the end of it doesn't help that i'm an evertonian but it was good fun. Lost on me, you know, anything when the television goes green, you know, I just pick up a book. Yeah, very sensible. I wish I could do that. But having been brought up in, in an Evertonian household, it kind of rubs off on you a little bit. There are some things from my childhood that deserve that time and attention, doesn't it? It sort of keeps us connected with our inner child as well, which is good. Absolutely. Yeah. ask 
everybody that comes on the show for them to have a think about a pivotal moment that's created a turning point in either their life or their career. So have you given that some thought and are you ready to share with the listeners? The pivotal conversation that changed everything about my life and my career is a conversation that I can't really remember very much about because of how nervous I was going into it. I can remember everything that happened before it and after it in terms of the changes that it made to my life. But the actual conversation was an interview. And I'm sure that that you and anyone listening can appreciate how nervous people are going into an interview and how when, when you're in that moment, you're kind of sitting there and you're just paying so much attention to getting your answers right and, and oh, making the sure adrenaline. Yeah, the adrenaline, yeah. making a good impression that kind of when you come out of it, you can't remember what you've said. It's kind of like going into an exam, isn't it? You can't remember what you've written down. You can't remember what you've said. And You come out with that kind of feeling of, it's just a feeling, an overall feeling of how it's gone, isn't it? And you're trying to sort of hang your hat on well, what was said there and there and you can't remember. Oh, so what happened? It was my first interview for a job in television. It was with somebody called Peter Pearson for a job on a TV show for ITV called Captain Mac. And I'd gone in off the back of a recommendation from a friend of mine called Gwen Ann. And she, uh, her nephew worked in this television studios in North Wales called Barker Derwent. And they had an outside TV company coming in to film this, this kids TV show. And she'd mentioned to him that I was considering going into TV. My, my degree had been in physiological science. I'd made some short films. I didn't want to do science anymore. It was great, but my microscope had kind of become my best friend and I'd, I'd always wanted to do film and television. And, and so she mentioned it to, to her nephew. And so he put in a, a word with the, the station manager and he put in a word with the production manager of the show. So I got a phone call from the production manager, Peter, and he said, if you want to come for an interview, you need to be here tomorrow. So, okay, off I went. Uh, no from, real preparation time. There isn't when it's TV. It's always been the case with any interviews that I've had for, for TV jobs. Um, oh, that's interesting. Because the turnover is so quick, usually get about 24 hours notice. So I drove from, from Liverpool to Carnarvon in North Wales, was sitting in the waiting room. Uh, I was the only one wearing a suit. So I thought, well, going into this, that's probably going to stand me in good stead. About four or five other people in the, in the reception of the, the studio. And I went in to meet Peter and I had with me, I'd, I'd made two short films up to that point. And obviously I hadn't studied film or, or television, I studied physiology. But I'd made these two short films and the first short film that we'd made, I'd really enjoyed making, didn't know what I was doing. I kind of made it up on the spot and, and all my friends with me, none of us had studied it. We, we kind of made it, but we, we'd done the whole thing. We'd shot it. We'd done proper post-production and then we put on a premiere and we got managed to get some press to the premiere. So we had a press pack and we had photos of the premiere and everything else. So we, we kind of done it how we thought films were supposed to be done from having kind of watched films and watched how film production companies did it. So that's what I took into my interview with him. And the interview must have lasted about 20 minutes or so. And I, I didn't get a chance to show him the film because we didn't watch it. But I left the film with him. I showed him the press pack. I talked him through it and I left kind of thinking, well, I don't know how that went. I don't know if that was a, a good conversation or not. And I got the job and that was brilliant because I was able to then ask him afterwards, well, why did you give me the job over everybody else? And he said two things that stuck with me. One of them was that I was the only one wearing a suit. Wow. Was everybody else sort of casual? They, they were smart casual, but they weren't in a suit. And the other one was that the film that I'd made and the, the kind of the press pack and the everything else that had come with that was to such a good standard compared to everybody else. And he said everyone else who had interviewed had all been to media school. 
had all been to film school or done production courses. And he said, the fact that I'd taken the initiative and gone and done that and produced something to such high quality without having ever been trained, he said that that showed that he thought that I would be able to be able to do the job. And I was only going for a runner's job, so it was unpaid. I was going to literally be a dog's body on the set. Yeah. Do you think that's a lot to do with the mindset of those that have come through media school where they know that they're going to be a runner and they're going to be a dog's body and they're not going to get paid, that they almost go through the motions rather than, you know, what you clearly showed him was a passion for wanting to do it. Could well have been. And and it has been a passion all my life since I was very small playing make-believe with my brother and seeing Edward Scissorhands when I was 11. And, and then oh, incredible film, yeah. yeah. It's amazing. But that's not to say that people who go to media school aren't passionate. I mean, I work with a number of people in my team who've been to media school and, and, and they're excellent um, and they are very, very passionate about it. So I don't know if that's the difference. But then as I got to know Peter and I got to know John and Ian and, and the other people on the team, I think probably that passion did come through. I was then quickly promoted from runner to second assistant director and uh, and then first assistant director and then eventually director. I ended up directing the last episode of that series, which was was amazing. Just thinking still about those other candidates, it kind of makes me think a little along the lines of other jobs and any other role, that if you're going for a job and you're not really invested in it, it comes across in your whole demeanour, the impression that you make, not saying that they're not passionate, but perhaps that particular position wasn't the one they really wanted. And I think the other thing that I reflect on was the old adage, I don't believe this to be true, but the old adage of dress for the job that you're going to get and a runner because you're a dog's body. You do tend to, you kind of dress because you're going to be running all over the place. You're service in every department, you're often jumping in and out of a vehicle. You don't want your six inch heels on, do you, Paul? You don't, and you don't want to be in a suit. But I didn't take that approach to go into the interview. I didn't think, well, I'm going to show up in kind of jeans and a shirt. I'm going to no, show up. No, because it's still an interview that's appropriate an interview. to be yeah. an interview. Yes, I understand. Yeah. So I, ha- I had that mindset and then obviously going with the kind of the, the film, which he did watch in the end. He, he, he did watch it afterwards and obviously to be able to kind of give, give feedback on, on the quality of it. So... And I wonder how many people, when they go for an interview, and this is just, you know, in general, really now, when they go to so much trouble, I kind of remember my eldest daughter, when she went to university, she took a great big portfolio of stuff with her. And she hadn't really, she was going for a decorative arts degree, and she hadn't really got the right A-levels and qualifications behind her, but she'd got a lot of portfolio material that she was taking a punt on it, but it was what she really wanted. When she secured that position, and I think there was only a handful of people that got onto that course, and I think about 20 people in the country or something ridiculous like that, you know, between them and, and down south. She did the same as you. She sort of said, well, why did you pick me? because she couldn't believe she'd got it because there were other people that had got the right qualifications, like you were saying about media school and and one thing and another. So it's important to ask for that feedback, I think. Yeah, it's incredibly important. And so one of my friends has this, uh, it's quite a cheesy saying, but I think it's true. Feedback's a gift down to how you unwrap it as to how you're going to kind of accept it. So if you unwrap it in a kind of negative sense and you kind of just kind of go, well, I'm going to take that really negatively, then you're going to come away with that feedback being kind of, well, I don't like that feedback. That's not not very good. But if you if you unwrap it in a really kind of grateful way, 
then feedback will always stand you in better stead the next time that you go into that situation. So I've always been one that takes feedback positively, whether I like the feedback or not. It's always something that's going to help me to improve next time. So I was more than happy to ask him for the feedback because I wanted to know because the nature of TV is you go from one contract to the next contract to the next contract to the next contract. There's very few jobs, none that I can think of right now in TV, unless you're kind of a commissioner at a, a channel, that you're actually on a, a long-term contract. You go from one con- short-term contract to the next to the next to the next. So I knew that that was going to be certainly for, well, it, st- it still happens from time to time. I do go and do television and film. So I knew that I was going to continue to have to interview for these positions over and over and over again. And I wanted to make sure that I was getting better and better every time I went in to these shows to make sure I was the right person. So it was right to ask and it was right to take it constructively. And I like the sound of your friends. That's a very good saying. Cheesy or not, I think it is a very good saying. In light of you asking for feedback on every job and then throughout what you do, when you work with people as well, what's it like having the shoe on the other foot do you get people asking you or do you give that feedback freely because you know how important that has been for you in your career often people do ask me for feedback and i will always ask them how they like to receive their feedback rather than just launching into it because some people are more delicate than other people and if you give uh, the wrong if you give feedback in the wrong way often you can offend people even though it is a gift so it's important to give it in the, in the right way. And when you ask someone how they like to receive their feedback, you will get people who go, oh, just give it to me straight. And then you give it to them straight and then they still take offense. The first time you give, when someone says, give it to me straight, that you kind of still hold back a little bit and see how they react. And I've got a couple of friends who I know well enough that I don't need to ask that question anymore. And there's some people that you say, how, how would you like your feedback? And they say, give it to me straight. And you kind of slightly sugarcoat it and they go, no, I said, give it to me straight. And then you know that they really like it straight. And then there's some people who, who don't ask for feedback, but you can see that they maybe need it a little bit. I will always ask permission to give them the feedback. So I'll, I'll just say something like, "Is it would, would it be okay if I, if I gave you a little bit of feedback? And then if they say yes, then I'll, again, I'll ask them, how do you like your feedback? It kind of goes back to what you do in your job, really, isn't it? Is by taking that logical process of taking somebody on a journey to a point of a decision and it's emotive. So that feedback is still emotive. So partly why you can't remember the conversation was because you were, it's a sort of phrase that I use, which is nervicated, equally nervous and anxious because you care about what you do. And I think that comes from a place of trueness. Yeah, absolutely. And it's the same with how you deal with other people, isn't it? You have to make sure that if if you're invested in them, then you have to make sure that the way that you feedback to them and the way that you treat them is fair. So it's only fair to give them feedback, but it's fair in the way that you give them feedback. Mm. Paul, I could talk to you all day. I really could. Thank you so much for bringing your pivotal moment onto the show for the listeners. If anybody wants to pick up the conversation with you, where's the best place for them to come and find you? So probably LinkedIn would be the best place. You'll find me, Paul Furlong MCIM on LinkedIn, or you could visit our website, which is weareopusmedia.com. We are on all the other social medias as well. We're not TikTok because that's not our target market, but you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all of that is We Are Opus Media as well. But LinkedIn and our website, probably the best two places to find us. Don't forget to follow, 
on Apple. You've got the ellipses at the top right side of my podcast page. Follow in the settings, do the automatic downloads, then you'll never miss any guests. And we've got some great guests coming up for you. Spotify is the big green button. It's cool. And next week, we're bringing you Masami Sato from B1G1 as a little tease. If we don't try to do big things, and if we only identify little things that we can do, then doing those little things is not that difficult to do. If you want to buy my book, don't forget, go over to themakingconversationscount.com and you'll find all the episodes that you've missed there, as well as all the other resources and letters to listeners from our past guests. Happy listening! Happy listening!